Welcome to the Ice at Dartmouth podcast. My name is Franklin Jacoby. Time is a fundamental feature of our everyday experience, but for such a common concept, it is rather difficult to say much about it with precision. What is it? Is it real? How does it change? Indeed, the nature of time has kept thinkers ranging from philosophers to scientists occupied for millennia. But today we'll be thinking about the concept of time from the perspective of contemporary physics. I'll talk with Dr. Philip Hoon, who is a theoretical physicist. He works and publishes on quantum gravity and associated topics such as mathematical physics, foundations of physics, and classical gravity. A particularly important part of his work is what's called the problem of time and quantum gravity. As you'll hear in our discussion, the two most successful theories of physics, general relativity and quantum mechanics, cannot agree on what time is. This keeps Dr. Hume very busy. Since receiving his PhD in 2012 at the University of Utrecht, Philip has been affiliated with a number of institutions across the world, most recently at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology. Thanks very much, Philip, for taking the time to chat with me. So you work on quantum gravity, on trying to reconcile quantum mechanics and general relativity, which is, I mean, by modern standards, quite an old problem, really. Do you want to say a little bit about what that problem is? Um, yeah, so that's right, indeed. So that's uh, one of the topics I work on. So um, yeah, it's the problem of actually reconciling um, probably the two most successful theories of physics that we have nowadays, and uh, both of which were really developed at the beginning of the 20th century. One is general relativity. It's the theory of uh, space and time, or it's a theory that actually merges uh, those notions into space-time, into unification. And it's the theory of gravity and the large scale structure of space-time. So in particular, it applies to the scales that we have uh, in the universe, like on cosmological scales or even uh, on astronomical scales. By contrast, uh, quantum theory um, was also, well, it was developed around the same time, but its uh, purpose is a very different one. Um, so it's really to describe the microcosm. Um, and so here, Initially, it was uh, only developed to, to really describe and explain the phenomena of, um, of, of atoms, especially the spectra of atoms and uh, of molecules. And then later it was extended to develop even more basic um, or more elementary descriptions of matter. Um, so um, then came the developments to describe also elementary particles. So these are basically the basic building blocks of any matter that we uh, see around us uh, in everyday um, scales as well. And I mean, these are um, predictions that have been developed um, well, both by theory and experiment and that uh, have been tested um, to arbitrary precision um, uh, you know, in, in great experiments around the world. And so, but, um, now, the interesting thing is that although these two theories um, are extremely successful, so both of them have uh, withstood every test to which they have been exposed, um, uh, they somehow, well, at least superficially, seem to contradict one another. Um, that has something to do with the fact that also they apply to very different uh, scales, as I mentioned. So one is uh, applicable, so quantum theory to the microcosm, General relativity applies more to the large scale structure of space time. But um, so, what we have learned uh, in the past decades is in fact that um, so there's four interactions uh, that we have in nature. Um, so, there's the electromagnetic interaction, there's the so called weak interaction, and there's the so called strong interaction, and then finally, there's the gravitational interaction. 
And the first three of these interactions, they have actually been uh, completely unified also in a quantum theory. And so somehow looking back in the history of physics, um, our understanding of physics has always developed in such a way that we could understand more and more, that we could unify our understanding. Somehow the remaining thing that we still need to do um, is somehow to make uh, gravity also compatible with, um, so the gravitational interaction make it compatible with quantum theory. And so this is the problem. Yeah. Those three forces, the electromagnetic, the weak and the strong forces, those are all treated by quantum mechanics and they're all on the microcosm. Right. The, the weak and the strong currents yeah. describe the, the sort of intramolecular forces, mm -hmm. how or intra-atomic forces, how atoms hold together. Yeah, so the, the electromagnetic forces, yeah, so they're mostly, I mean, of course, we can um, have their interaction also on a larger scale. I mean, we use them in everyday life to communicate, of course, in our computers, they all work based on that. But uh, but it's true that, um, that really uh, the origin comes, of course, from the atoms. And um, this is also where it was uh, described first uh, as, a, as a quantum theory or on a quantum level. Um, but then um, the, the, the strong and the weak interactions, they're really only um, interactions that happen essentially at the level of the nucleus. So the weak interaction happens on the level of the nucleus and the strong interactions essentially even more in the constituents uh, inside the nucleus, like uh, quarks and gluons and so on. So those are actually interactions, both of these kinds of interactions, we, we don't really see them in everyday life. So we don't have any a practical technological applications of them, but they are absolutely crucial in our um, uh, in understanding how you know the matter constituents um, come together to form what we see around us. And in fact, one way to experience the weak interaction is essentially also through what happens in the sun. Um, so the energy that radiates out of it is uh, also the weak interaction actually causing some of that radiation. Um, and yeah, actually another way, um, we, well, it's not quite true what I said. Um, I should uh, uh, go back a step. So the weak interaction is in fact also um, quite crucial in, in nuclear reactors. So uh, nuclear power plants, um, they're of course also based on, on uh, weak interactions. So that's maybe an exception. That's definitely a technological application, but, um, but there's otherwise um, not usually, um, um, you know, uh, technological applications. Uh, that we use at homes or so. And, and in addition to the, the difference in scale there's between quantum mechanics and general relativity, there are also uh, deep conceptual differences and differences in yeah. how the mathematics works out. Is that right? Yeah, and that's exactly right. So that's also, in fact, and that's precisely the origin of uh, the topic that uh, we've been working on also while I was at Dartmouth. And so, for instance, one of the things that uh, general relativity and uh, quantum mechanics um, treat very, very um, differently is, um, is, is the role of time, actually. So, in, um, so the notion of time or what is time even at all. So in, in general relativity, one thing we have learned is that the notion of time is really um, something you can think of as dynamical. It is something that depends on 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 the on the observer, um, so on the on the agent basically who's who's uh, describing the world. It depends on your state of motion. It also depends on um, actually, in fact, the matter around you and the gravitational interactions to which you're exposed. So um, and so, since the entire matter contribution in our universe, you know, the distribution of planets and uh, and whatnot and stars and so on. 
that's of course something dynamical and our notion of time actually is intimately tied to um, that distribution of matter and uh, thereby it is really a dynamical notion. By contrast, in, um, and so this was actually one of the most radical departures conceptually um, uh, from well, pre-relativistic physics and in particular the Newtonian conception of time that, uh, that uh, well, had lived in physics until the early 20th century. Um, and so this old concept of time, um, so that there is somehow this external parameter um, that uh, sort of um, uh, yeah, parametrizes or keeps track of the flow of time, um, this is coming from Newtonian physics, that is, uh, still, that is something that has still survived in exactly that form in standard quantum theory, at least in, uh, in, in, uh, yeah, in, in the standard form of quantum mechanics. And um, well, there have been some generalizations to include also um, special relativity into quantum theory. Special relativity already has a sort of observer-dependent no notion of time, but it's not exactly dynamical in the same way as it is in general relativity, and that has not been really a problem. So this, uh, this was possible, and that goes under the name of quantum field theory, essentially. But um, yeah, the, the much deeper problem is now to really um, reconcile um, quantum mechanics or quantum theory with, uh, with general relativity. And this is where we really find head on um, these two different conceptions of time uh, well, coming to conflict in, in some sense. And, um, and so this really goes under the name, uh, uh, or it's called the problem of time. Um, and that's a widely, it's, it's, it's really an infamous problem in the field, one should say. And it is a problem that has been around since, um, well, at least uh, the early 60s, but essentially it has been already known uh, since the 50s. And so, um, yeah, do you have a question or? So is it, is it uh, fair to say that quantum mechanics takes a more Newtonian attitude towards time? It doesn't have a dynamic mm -hmm. uh, observer relative notion of time that it's using? Um, yeah, so at least the, the original textbook formulation, yes. Um, so it has been, uh, it was possible to reconcile it with uh, special relativity. So that has not been a problem, but, uh, but, uh, but it, yeah, overall one could say it has a notion of time that indeed is, is pre-generativistic. So it's special relativistic is possible, um, but it's, it's definitely not uh, generativistic. And if you okay, it would, so it's linear and doesn't depend on the particular observer. Um, yeah, so uh, in, in okay, that, that may be a bit confusing, but um, so there's a difference, of course. So there's a conceptually a step from Newtonian physics to first special relativity, then to general relativity. So special relativity already had a, um, in fact, a certain radical departure in the notion of time. So this is where, for the first time. The observer dependence um, of time uh, came up, but in a much milder form than, than in general activity. General activity, um, this was generalized and it became a really a dynamical notion, which uh, is not the case in special relativity in the same sense. Um, and so what has been possible um, is to reconcile quantum theory with uh, special relativity. And this is exactly, in fact, uh, encoded in these so-called quantum field theories that describe the three interactions that we discussed before, electromagnetic interaction, uh, the weak and the strong interaction. So those are actually described in terms of a quantum theory that is compatible with uh, special relativity. Um, but yeah, the really outstanding puzzle is how to reconcile it with really the dynamical notion of time that arises in general relativity. 
And so, but it is true that if you really in the standard formulations, um, like to describe atoms and so on, um, uh, that has been developed in, in the early 20th century and that you know, students are exposed to in, in their first years, um, the notion of time there in those quantum mechanics textbooks, that is really the Newtonian notion of time, that is true. How does one go about trying to reconcile these different, these different conceptions of time? Um, yeah, so, um, so the thing is, um, so the reconciliation of a special relativistic uh, time and, and quantum theory, um, that was not so difficult because, um, uh, as I mentioned before, the special relativistic notion of time is not, uh, is not dynamical itself. So what I should say probably is that when you have dynamical degrees of freedom or dynamical observables, um, uh, some properties, um, they're of course usually described in terms of, um, yeah, so, so they're described in terms of observables, or these objects are called observables, and then quantum theory, um, they become uh, uh, quantized, they have quantum properties, but uh, this really applies to dynamical quantities. It's dynamical in that it's, it's that uh, sort of observer relative, or what makes a system or a property dynamical? Yeah, so, um, so what makes it dynamical is, so <laughs> that's a very good question, in fact. So, it's a, um, so it has to satisfy certain equations of motion, both uh, either the classical theory or in the, in the quantum theory. Now you might want to ask, what, what is an equation of motion? Um, so um, that's a very good question, but that's something that, um, uh, uh, yeah, so that comes from um, certain physical principles. Um, so it's maybe a bit difficult to explain that to, uh, um, to non-physicists, um, but it's, it's basically the origin is, is sort of similar to, um, uh, I mean, many probably have heard of the Newtonian axioms um, and Newtonian physics. Um, so the laws of mechanics were, for instance, um, you know, the force is uh, proportional to some acceleration. Um, that's actually a physical law from which um, you can derive dynamical um, properties. So you can, actually derive from uh, these observations how um, some system may change in time. And um, these laws, um, um, they are then dynamical laws. And uh, usually these, um, these, these quantities, physical quantities that are subject to um, such physical laws um, or that are dynamical in the sense that they can change in time, it doesn't really matter at this point um, how this law came about, but in quantum theory, these dynamical properties are well, they undergo quantum properties. So they become in some sense fuzzy. Um, so by fuzzy, I mean that um, they don't necessarily need to have a very sharp state um, uh, as, as uh, usual classical properties in physics. Um, and by not being sharp, uh, I mean that, for instance, the outcomes of measurements of these properties, they, um, well, they, they can be probabilistic. So you, you may not always be able to predict with certainty um, the outcomes of, of the next measurements you do on that, uh, on, on such an observable or in such a quantity. Ah, okay, so for these, for these objects, so they're dynamic in that you can, you, can, um, you can treat them dynamically using certain laws of physics and certain mathematical um, yeah. apparatus. And then to quantize mm -hmm. them, you're trying to turn them into, um, into objects that you explain probabilistically? Is that yes, well fuzzy? Maybe that's a little simplistic? Um, yes, that's right. So I mean, um, yeah, so the technical term is operators, <laughs> but um, that's probably uh, not uh, very telling for um, people who are not physicists. 
But um, indeed, so these are objects that um, if you want to describe their physical properties, there's always a fuzziness in the sense that um, physical states or you know how some physical system is, its properties are in general such that some of its, its physical properties cannot even in principle be um, uh, uh, predicted with certainty. So this goes under the name of uh, uncertainty relations um, and the best known example of that, so this was something developed by Werner Heisenberg in the early 20s, is for instance that if you look at the velocity and the position of a particle, you can't actually determine these two properties with infinite precision at the same time, not even in principle. There's a physical principle that uh, this allows you to do that. And so basically, if you measure the position of the particle with infinite precision, then you have to accept actually that your knowledge, your accessible knowledge about its velocity is, uh, is infinitely fuzzy. You don't actually know anything really about it. And so these are things that um, uh, they're not just abstract. So these, these, uh, um, these properties have been measured in experiments. So it's, it's all corroborated. Um, but it tells you that, you know, once you know some property of such a quantum system, you may not uh, be able to know um, at times not even anything at all about uh, another property. Um, so you, by not knowing, I mean, you can't predict it with a certainty and it just becomes a completely um, probabilistic uh, exercise. And so you can only give certain probabilities for certain outcomes. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's what I mean by this fuzziness. And general relativity, um, traditionally doesn't have this kind of uh, fuzziness. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's exactly the point. So, and then, um, and that leads to that so-called problem of time, um, or it's one of the origins. So uh, general relativity indeed um, is such that space-time itself, in fact, becomes a physical entity. So it's a physical system, really. It is dynamical. It is subject to, to laws, to dynamical laws. Um, so similar to what we were talking about before. And so, yeah, space-time itself has dynamical properties. And now if you want to um, reconcile it with quantum theory, the question is whether we actually now quantize or yeah, associate quantum properties with uh, space-time itself. But now space-time is, of course, um, a conjunction of uh, space and time. Um, and so uh, basically, if you now try to um, reconcile it with quantum theory, what you will have to accept is essentially that your notion of space and time will become fuzzy in, in some sense, in, or in a similar sense to what I was uh, explaining before about the position of the particle and the velocity. There will be properties of space and time um, which you may not be able to, um, well, to even measure or to determine uh, with infinite precision at the same time. And so in that sense, there will be properties of space-time that will inevitably be fuzzy in that sense. And why is that a, and th that is, that fuzziness is something that um, quantum physicists seem happy with, if I'm right, with, with their work. What, what, what is uh, undesirable about that in the general relativity case? Um, yeah, so um, it's not necessarily undesirable in the, in the general relativity case, it's just that the theory has been developed in, in, that, uh, in that language because so while general relativity was a drastic departure from certain Newtonian notions of um, well, the concepts of space and time, it still retains um, some uh, notions of what is usually called classical physics, so physics prior to quantum theory. And, that is um, namely that the universe or that there is somehow a state of affairs, a definite state of affairs, 
such that all degrees of freedom um, actually are in some specific states. And um, so in some specific state, meaning that they have uh, definite physical properties. And that's of course in conflict with that fuzziness um, where you have to accept that once um, one uh, physical property is completely determined and you have measured it, that at the same time you cannot know anything really or um, the knowing uh, the other properties is really just purely probabilistic. It's, um, so in that sense, fuzzy. Ah, okay. So for general relativity, it seems like, um, I mean, with all the work that has happened over, over the decades since its conception, that we can specify very precisely and definitively say where objects are and at what time. But that seems exactly. like that's not possible, not going to be a possibility if we quantize. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. So that the notion of um, localization in space time, so that means localization in time and in space will become something that will um, generally not be possible with arbitrary precision. And so, in fact, the, so I mean, there's of course many approaches um, to quantum gravity. Um, uh, I mean, you might have heard of string theory or loop quantum gravity, and um, there's many other approaches. Um, but uh, so while in details they will, um, you know, differ on the precise departure from classical space-time that would be predicted through these quantum gravity approaches, I mean, they somehow agree in one way or another that the structure of space-time that we know from general relativity um, uh, is no longer valid to arbitrary small scales. So to like the really um, small microcosm of, of space-time structure, there is somehow most of us expect that there's some fuzzy, um, you know, fuzzy structure. There's some, uh, yeah, possibly even some discrete geometric structures um, that uh, that that have quantum properties. And um, so, um, yeah. So then the question really becomes, you know, what is the notion of time at such really arbitrarily small scales? And um, and how do you can how can you reconcile our 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 standard experience of the flow of time? It seems, of course, that time is passing. Um, how can we reconcile that from um, a more fundamental theory that uh, tries to explain our universe um, through um, well, quantum theory and uh, generativity merged and okay, some matter degrees of freedom as well? Um, how can we explain these things um, from from a fundamental theory that actually um, doesn't come equipped with this um, sort of everyday notion of time that we seem to experience. And how do you, and how, and you've done a lot of work trying to, trying to, to reconcile this. How did, how did, and there are lots of approaches you talked about string theory and so on. How do you try to quantize gravity? Yeah, so I personally um, I have become a little more agnostic about which one would be exactly the right approach to quantum gravity. So there exist various approaches on the market. Um, unfortunately, there are sometimes some quasi-religious divides um, between the different approaches. Um, so I'm not interested in uh, engaging myself in uh, trench warfare. So. Um, uh, I think it is at this stage a little um, too early to really say which one is the right approach. Um, so I'm trying to keep a little more open-minded in the sense that I try to address problems that are um, that appear in one way or another in various approaches to quantum gravity. So um, 
that the work I'm doing um, yeah, addresses sort of more general problems that are not really approach specific. So in some loose sense, you could say that my approach to quantum gravity is, is in some sense an approach, independent approach, um, <laughs> whatever <laughs> that may, it may mean in, in, in detail. But um, uh, yeah, so, but the problem of time is something that appears in, okay, in various approaches uh, to, to quantum gravity and even and so, uh, so-called holographic approaches to quantum gravity. Um, so they had their origin in string theory, although you can view them somewhat independently by now. Um, this is actually where people are now also starting to get interested into the question of time. This is something fairly recent. And um, so in other approaches that I um, was sort of more engaged with earlier, um, this question has already been addressed uh, since a much longer time. But in any case, um, so the works that I'm doing, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to use structures um, that, uh, well, that appear, or that will appear in, in such a form, um, well, in, in various approaches at least, or in, in, in a form that might not be too distant from, from various approaches. And then I try to see what we can learn um, um, from fairly general assumptions and fairly general structures. And another thing is that, um, yeah, so I, I also try to use a lot of techniques that are in fact well established um, from you know, other parts of physics that we already understand quite well. Um, and so, um, and that has been fairly successful uh, in, in recent years, even also in this context of the problem of time. Um, so we try to focus on models um, that we can actually control, that we can compute analytically, where we don't necessarily need a computer to, to evaluate certain things. And, uh, and um, that has certainly taught us um, also at a conceptual level quite a lot. Um, and, and, and this is something that we're currently focusing on. And, and these structures that are common to multiple approaches, these are these are uh, mathematical structures or mathematical yeah. tools that um, that are yeah, that's right. Yes, maybe not universal, but used by lots of different sorts yes. of approaches. That's right. Yeah, and um, yeah. So the thing is that various of the approaches will differ in the details in which they might want to apply these uh, structures, um, but. Uh, but at least uh, um, in one way or another, they do appear in various approaches. So, Are there particular, I mean, so maybe this is at too abstract a level, but are there going to be specific commitments to which notion of time uh, we would need to prefer given the approach you're taking? Um, yeah, so that's, uh, um, yeah, not necessarily. So that's, uh, well, so not a preferred notion of time. So actually, this is really one of the things that I'm uh, trying to implement. And that's probably one of the things that is quite new in my work compared to uh, well, the pre-existing literature. And that is in this uh, so-called problem of time, uh, one of the issues that was usually raised is that, um, um, well, they don't exist um, um, distinguished choices of, of time because of course in special and general relativity we know there's many different choices of time and in these theories I mean there are classical theories and are quantum series but um, there we have a very well understood way of translating between the different uh, choices of time so we associate the different uh, choices of time with different observers but we have very well established transformations that tell us if one observer experience this, the world um, according to uh, their clock, then um, we, we know 
how to translate from that description to the description of another observer who has a different clock. And um, this is something that was really lacking uh, in the literature on, on, on quantum clocks, really, or on, on quantum time, if you want. Um, and this is something that uh, I have been particularly interested in in recent years, um, that is basically to develop um, uh, really a so-called um, quantum clock covariance, which means really you can have many different uh, quantum clocks. So when quantum clocks, I really just mean clocks as dynamical systems um, subject to, uh, to quantum fluctuations, so to quantum uh, fuzziness. Um, so if we describe the dynamics or the evolution, the time evolution relative to one quantum clock, that we um, are also able to indeed have a framework that tells us um, how then the same evolution would be described to a different quantum clock, for instance. And so that we have the same transformation or like the analogous transformations that we have classically, that we have something like that also in the quantum theory. And that's uh, it's been one of uh, my key focuses in recent years. And we have made definitely some, uh, some progress there, although still much uh, needs to be done because in the quantum theory, it's much more complicated when you're dealing with quantum clocks than with classical clocks. Um, but yeah, the upshot of that is really um, that, that we can follow the premise that there's no distinguished uh, notion of time in the universe. In fact, that there are many different choices of time and that in some sense they're all equivalent. Um, well, in the sense that we can actually translate between the time evolutions relative to different choices of clock. And, and here it's quantum clocks. Yeah. And those different clocks are associated with different, different observers. Each observer has has their, yeah, own, you, their own time, you, their own clock. You, you could think of it that way. And so here in this case, it's even a bit more drastic because here it's somewhat more elementary. You could think of, um, uh, you don't necessarily have to think of them in terms of observers. If it helps for intuition, that's fine. But in fact, these quantum clocks, you could think of them somewhat independently or the observers that would be associated with them in some sense are not uh, the observers as us uh, conscious beings necessarily, but you know, there could be some other quantum systems. So it's really just describing um, um, you know, the, the time evolution experienced by quantum systems essentially. And so, how, um, yeah. How do, you how do you delineate the, those quantum systems? Is it, is it uh, an ch arbitrary choice where those systems are? Um, you mean uh, the separation between the clock and the other degrees of freedom, or, um, or, or what? Yes. Yeah, so, so say you have two two quantum systems, two clocks. Yeah. Uh, where mm -hmm. is the? How, how do you tell those two clocks apart? How do you how do you say that they're not the same clock? Yeah. So that um, yeah, generally that's a, that's a good question. So. Um, so in these models, it's fairly easy to tell them apart simply because they, they correspond to different variables, so different degrees of freedom. Um, so they have really different, uh, um, yeah, so they really, I mean, on a technical level, you can really um, tell them apart as different systems. So with different degrees of freedom. And so um, that's really built into the, into the models that we're using, um, yeah. So, but it's true that when you are given some, uh, some quantum system and then you're supposed to select a, um, some clock from it, then indeed uh, a priori it's not completely clear which subsystem you should pick as a clock. Um, and there's many different choices. Um, and uh, in fact, that is also something that we're addressing. So, um, you know, that we can relate the different choices that of subsystems that you might want to pick as a, as a clock. 
um, and then again translate between the different descriptions. Now, if you can translate between these different, this is perhaps a bit of a, a basic question, um, if you'll humor me, but if you can translate between the different clocks through this more um, abstract mathematics, why do you need the, the particular clocks? Couldn't the general mathematics provide um, a full account or explanation, or is it not specific enough? Um, no, yeah, so that wouldn't be specific enough. So here, the thing is that, um, you know, these, these translations, um, they really only make sense uh, at an interpretive level when you associate them with different, um, you know, quantum clocks. So if you don't, if you just talk about trans translations or transformations without saying between which physical systems you're translating, then, uh, then, then it, yeah, then it becomes a bit uh, devoid of meaning. And so um, that's why it's really important. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, so for instance, um, I mean, you can't even think of it, uh, you know, in everyday life, if we talk about some time zone difference um, and say, well, there's a time zone difference of six hours um, as between the two of us at this point, um, then, uh, you know, if we don't say um, between whom there is this, uh, this time difference and this time difference we could view in some sense as a translation between uh, my time here and your time uh, in, in the US, um, then, uh, you know, if we don't say between which uh, physical systems um, there's this time difference, then that statement, there's a six hour time difference becomes a bit uh, uninformative. And so it, it's the same situation here at the level of quantum clocks, essentially. I see, I see. And unlike, unlike um, the time difference, between, so there's a time difference between us. We each have a, there's a very specific time at which we're each speaking for, yeah. For these sorts of systems, now that that's not so definite, is that right? There's just a some kind of probability distribution. Yeah, that's right. So the exactly. So for these quantum clocks, um, yeah. So they really, uh, um, yeah, they, they define a quantum notion of time, really. So and as such, indeed, as as you say, and coming back to what uh, I mentioned before about quantum properties of physical systems, so that applies to time then. And so then indeed the readings of the different clocks, um, of the different quantum clocks, um, they become fuzzy and uh, becomes probabilistic. And um, indeed there are some funny things happening um, for uh, quantum clocks, which in, uh, in, the, in the classical limits um, would sort of, where it would be completely clear how to translate from the evolution uh, of one relative to one clock to that relative to another. And, and the two clocks would sort of always in some sense agree um, or they would run in step when you when you when you do the same thing in the quantum theory. It's, uh, it turns out it's, there's a sort of quantum relativity, and uh, comparing these different clock readings um, uh, becomes really uh, dependent on your choice of clock. And uh, so the different uh, pairings of of the clock readings. Um, um, so basically, what, what's the reading of clock two when clock one reads such and such? Uh, that question or the answer to that question really depends on, on, on your choice of, of quantum clock, actually. And it won't be the same uh, relative to clock one as it is relative to clock two. And that's really a new quantum uh, feature, actually. New to quantum mechanics, but quite familiar to, to general relativity. Relativity. Um, yeah, so this is actually a, a genuine quantum effect here. This is something that in in this. So yeah, 
it's a good point. So in, in generativity, there exist um, uh, such uh, notions of relativity. Obviously, that's built into the name of the theory. But that is actually a somewhat different relativity than what I'm talking about here. Um, so the um, so these these different so, so the thing is um, in generativity. Um, okay, so there's this notion of proper time, and um, you could still. Um, uh, so two different observers um, well, who might experience a different notion of time in their reference frame, they can still communicate and tell each other, oh, my clock reads such and such. And the other one says, oh, my mine reads such and such. And then they might see, oh, you know, their clocks weren't actually completely synchronized and they might not have been in step. But they can always compare the two different clock readings and later on they can meet and then they can compare the readings and there will, won't be a disagreement in the sense that both will agree, oh, when I read, when my clock read uh, 5 p.m., your clock was uh, 5.15 or something. Um, so they will, they will agree on these uh, facts, but this is something that actually no longer holds true here in the quantum realm. So it's even, um, so the different, uh, the histories, um, in some sense, they don't match together anymore in, 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 in this easy way as it does in generativity. Ah, okay, so for general relativity, you might have, um you might have two observers and they have different clocks and the clocks di give different readings, but uh, yeah. those readings are consistent throughout the history, say, of each observer. Whereas here, for if you quantize it, then uh, the readings might not remain consistent if you look back at the history of what the clock read. Yeah, so the, the thing is, if you compare the two different histories relative to the two different clocks, um, so how, in some sense, in some loose sense, they see each other, um, then the, the two different histories, um, there, there may be discrepancies that don't fit together in that nice way as they would in generativity. And so, and that has something really to do with these quantum uncertainties and indeed with these fluctuations and this fuzziness. Um, so there is just no such um, definite uh, um, notion of time that one can translate between different clocks as there is uh, in, 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 in generativity. And so the, in, in that sense, it is really a new quantum effect. And in some sense, it is when you apply that to generativity, it's an even more drastic notion of relativity of, of clock readings. Interesting. And it sounds like if this is successful, it would be quite a radical change for those doing general relativity. They'd no longer be able to make definitive predictions or give definitive descriptions yeah so i mean so the thing is one can still make um uh, it's, it's not quite that extreme so the um so one can definitely make still um definitive um predictions so okay it depends a bit on what one means by definitive but so the thing is per reference frame um one can still make these uh, predictions and you know, per frame you have some quantum clock and you can make predictions what happens it's just that indeed uh, these predictions are generally probabilistic. Um, so you can just give certain probabilities for certain outcomes of measurements in the future and thereby also only probabilities for certain clock readings and so on. So, uh, so if you want to say by definitive that you always have a certainty that certain outcomes will happen and that certain uh, uh, clock readings will happen, okay, in that sense, um, that will no longer be there, that's true. But still, um, at least in the usual sense of, of quantum theory, um, per reference frame, we can still make essentially the same 
kinds of predictions um, as uh, with the standard quantum theory, except that now we apply them to concepts of space and time that normally we wouldn't do in. in I see. I see. So, so, so we can we can say predict quite precisely using general relativity where the, the planets in the solar system yeah, are, definitely. for example. Yeah. And uh, if we quantized it, we'd be able to uh, perhaps give very high probabilities, incredibly high probabilities of where those Absolutely. planets would be. But we would, but we would not say. I don't know. There's there's no necessity to the, their position the way there might have been with general relativity. Yeah, so the thing is that, um, so indeed, I mean, one thing I probably should have said is that, um, so these, these quantum time effects or this fuzziness um, that really would be something that only happens uh, uh, at a microscopic level. I mean, really, really a minuscule space-time scale, so far away from what we experience in everyday life. And um, so it's not a fuzziness of time that we would, uh, experience in everyday life and obviously we don't experience it in everyday life if we look around us everything seems to be quite predictable what happens in the sense that you know there's uh, the, the, the laws of motion of Newton apply quite well to the description of uh, how a football flies through the air and so on so that doesn't need to be uh, uh, revised um, the only thing is that these laws, these older laws of physics um, they're only an approximation to more fundamental descriptions of uh, physics and um, the more fundamental descriptions well they usually encode the older descriptions um, but they go beyond them but in the way they go beyond them is usually in more extreme situations that we don't experience uh, you know in our everyday life and so um, it's also when we look around us um, you know the football flying through the air in principle it is a quantum system and subject to quantum fuzziness but there is um, well, certain properties that happen when, when systems are very large, quantum systems are very large and heavy, um, then in fact, this, this quantum fuzziness actually essentially, well, it, it's not detectable. It's, it's just, uh, um, yeah, it, it's not measurable. That's why effectively we don't need quantum theory to describe the football flying through the air. But if you want to describe the atoms inside the football, then we definitely need uh, quantum theory. And so with uh, space-time, the situation would be similar that, yes, on very tiny scales, um, there's fuzziness in the, uh, uh, in, in the notion of, of, of temporal localization or in, um, the notion of time. Um, but it's something that when you look at large scales, such as planets and so on, um, they are so heavy that um, these quantum effects will not really play a role. There's more question in very extreme situations, such as, for instance, black holes and so on. Okay, they're extremely heavy objects, but um, this is where space-time is under such heavy or extreme conditions that, in fact, inside uh, or basically just around or in the vicinity of black holes, something like this might have an effect. But this is in really extreme uh, regions and, and you know, not directly relevant to our, our everyday life. So what we're doing here, usually in quantum gravity, is indeed something that's uh, a priori quite remote from, from our everyday experience. Um, and uh, so our aim thereby is not uh, at this stage you know, to develop something, technological applications for, uh, well, for, um, for everyday life. It's, it's really just trying to answer fundamental questions about um, um, the origin of time and space and uh, in our universe to understand these properties. Um, so it's more curiosity-driven research in a sense of, 
of, of really answering deep questions uh, about our universe. I see, I see. And I suppose too, so just as um, on the large scale, those quantum effects don't really have any measurable yeah. difference, difference, the, the right. gravitational uh, forces are so weak on the quantum level that we don't really need to change what we're doing with quantum mechanics. Yeah, so we don't need to change what we do with quantum mechanics when we want to describe atoms or um, the elementary particles. So that is really well understood how to describe that. And there won't be, um, well, yeah, quite truly not measurable differences in the, um, in, for those effects. Um, but yeah, it's really more uh, these things, uh, well, for which quantum gravity is important, that's really more for very extreme situations um, uh, that do exist in our universe or existed such as at the, whatever might have been a, the beginning of our universe, uh, if there has been a beginning, um, or uh, um, you know, inside black holes and, and, and so on. Or if you were to zoom in uh, really on, on, a, on a tiny minuscule scale of space-time, um, then you might also, if, if one was able to do that um, um, practically, I mean, uh, to measure some such quantum effects um, of, of space and time as well. But, um, but yeah, it's true. And in, in for the description of, of, of what we already understand, uh, not much will change. We should probably wrap up here in just a moment, but I wonder if I might um, ask where this research will be taking you next. Um, Location-wise, or you mean research-wise? <laughs> I was thinking research-wise. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, research-wise. So, I mean, I'm currently um, still working on, well, facets of this problem of time. So, there's been further development since my visit to Dartmouth. Um, and um, some really interesting developments. Um, um, so, yeah. I'm kind of building up on that um, and uh, in fact also uh, in part still together with Alex Smith uh, who was one of my hosts at uh, Dartmouth and um, yeah so we're essentially really extend trying to extend these um, these models that we have under control by now and where we understand certain properties much better um, to uh, much more complicated situations really um, so, um, and, and okay, that's, that's maybe a bit more technical, but um, to really apply them to more realistic gravitational scenarios. So the qualitative effects will presumably be the same. It's just much harder to, to prove in, in such systems. Um, um, but yeah, it's definitely a step that we need to do and that's something uh, that we set out to do. Um, but yeah, there's many other problems uh, related to quantum gravity that I'm also working on that are not necessarily tied to this notion of problem of time. Um, well, th thank you very much, Philip. It's been a real pleasure. It's been really fascinating. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, uh, happy to do so. Um, thank you very much also for, for your time. Uh, it was great. Thank you for joining us. I'm grateful to everyone at ICE at Dartmouth and Philip Hoon for making this episode possible. We listen to The Wonder of Science by Alexa Music. Stay tuned for more episodes or check ice.dartmouth.edu.